Hello everyone, welcome back to the One Talk podcast. You're here with your host, Ryan McCarthy. And on the One Talk podcast, the mission behind this is to bring experts on and discuss resources, strategies, tips, tools that you can implement into your life so you can fill your potential and become the best version of yourself. Whether that's mindset, mental health, financial, business, relationships, health, fitness, any aspect of life in terms of growth, you will find an episode within this podcast that you can listen to to adapt and implement into your life. And if you could please give this podcast a share, if you can leave it a rating and share it with someone that you know to receive value from this, that would mean a lot. In terms of helping this podcast grow and reach a larger audience and get this message out there for a lot of people, just to bring more people onto this platform and make it a one-stop place for personal growth. I appreciate every single one of you tuning in every week. And I also appreciate all the new listeners coming to the One Talk podcast. Today we are joined by Mo Hassoun. Mo is an addiction counselor, a psychotherapist, and he's also the author of the book Manifestation. Mo specializes in addiction, and within this episode, we touch on so many subjects around addiction, how addiction begins, how addiction is formed, how you can begin the recovery journey of addiction, why addiction even occurs in the first place, does it come for your genes and your family? How to support someone who has addiction and so much more. So within this episode, you'll find a lot of value around addiction, mindset, and mental health. So let's welcome to the show, Mo. So I came to the country when I was 18 years old to the US, mm. to Detroit as a foreign exchange student, I had a student visa. And uh, I enrolled in school, you know, it was a big culture shock, language, issues, mm. expectations, the assimilation problems that I had. It took me a while to get the gist of how things worked. Yeah. So there was a lot of pressure as well placed on me to do something with my life. Mm. Right. And I kept coming up short over time. And yeah. a lot of people that I grew up with uh, had levels or advanced or started families. And I just felt like I was behind all the time. And mm. my ego was, you know, kind of hurt by this. And I started to find ways to take shortcuts. So I've done some things. I was, you know, looking through substances, people, fast money. A lot of the things that I participated in, you know, had a lot of consequences. And if they weren't basically legal in nature, they were uh, mental health based. Yeah. So the, the, the trauma also that was suppressed and accumulated over time from my country, mm. from the family dynamics, from the experiences that I've had, from the instability and the pressure that was placed on performance constantly. You know, my parents, they had a really specific way of uh, an expectation, real, real strong expectations on what they wanted. Mm. And it was just difficult. I feel like it created a lot of resilience in me, but it was misdirected at times. Mm. And so the consequences of, you know, me making choices when I was 18 plus were my lessons over time. Yeah. It was a long journey. I always had an interest in wanting to find my way, not adopt somebody's way. I had kind of like a rebellious mm-hmm. mindset. But it was misguided. It was misdirected. You know, it was good energy, but it was placed in the wrong places. It took a while, you know. It took me about 12 years to get a six-year degree. You know, mm-hmm. when I say this to people, they, they, uh, they're like, wow, you, you still got it. That, the, the reality of it is I was always 
struggling with finding myself and at the same time pleasing people. The direction was wrong. Mm. I didn't want the success for me. I wanted to shut everybody off and let them see that I actually did accomplish something with my life. So it took, it took a while for me to figure out that uh, this was the path for me because where I'm from, mental health is stigmatized as well. You know, guys don't talk about their feelings. Guys yeah. don't report that they have problems. You know, it's, it's like a, the culture doesn't support expressing yourself. Mm. So you're indirectly taught and, and expected to suppress everything and act like everything is okay. And that's when the pursuit to look for soothing elements starts, mm. right? Whether it's through success, making money fast, whether it's through substances, whether it's through people and relationships. And it was quite a journey, brother. Yeah. Was it when you started to form these new habits and you started to see a change within yourself? Is that when you wanted to begin studying in this career that you're in now? You know, I'll be honest with you. It was never planned. Yeah. I wanted to get a quick degree in the beginning, but I've always had a passion for understanding how the brain works and how the mind works. And I just enrolled in a college and I figured because I had a hard time asking for help, I'm going to figure this out on my own. I'm going to learn all the tricks. I'm going to learn all the habits. So my intention of going to school was not clean. Yeah. It was basically a way of overcoming. And at the same time, I would secure a basic job so I can earn a stable income. Mm. Uh, it wasn't until I started actually doing the internship piece and they, in a way, require you to go through counseling yourself mm. that I started to realize, man, I got issues. Like there's a lot of stuff here. There's baggage and i haven't categorized it i haven't cleaned it up i haven't purged it and i started to notice that all i needed was someone to trust someone that had results someone that asked the right questions someone that showed that they cared mm. but didn't enable yeah and it was a, a process it, it started this way and then it developed into other things mm. but that was the beginning of it it was a mandatory class where i had to act as a client and then it began. Then the journey began. The awareness started to develop. Mm. And do you think that rebelliousness that you have within you that you said you had at the beginning, do you reckon that's what helped drive you through the recovery stages as well? You know, in the beginning, I didn't really care about recovery. I just yeah. wanted to um, find a way because you have to understand like the ego is very sneaky. And, mm. and there's like two versions usually for us. The authentic version, which is dying to be vulnerable which is dying to be authentic which is dying to actually show its true self mm -hmm. and there's the other version which is compensation based that focuses on people pleasing you know um portraying a certain image and you know being the oldest in the family out of three boys i had to lead i had to figure mm -hmm. out a way to like make an example so a lot of it in the beginning unfortunately was uh, aggression, a lot of violence, a lot of control, a lot of forced elements. And, you know, um, over time, I had to find a way to direct all this energy. So when I got into recovery, I resented the idea of showing vulnerability or even the word surrender. Mm. Like the concept of surrender, because there was resentments towards God. There was mm. resentments towards the culture. There was resentments towards the system. Why am I going to surrender to this thing supposedly that's going to help me elevate to the next level right mm. so i was still resistant even in recovery like 
And individuals in stages of recovery don't really buy into it fully. You know, sometimes it could be an ultimatum. Sometimes you could be forced. Sometimes it could be legal, motivated. So it's external in nature in the beginning, but it's up to the resources that you have and the people you meet along the way that could help enhance that level of motivation and create an internal, uh, you know, incentive instead of just external ones. Mm. And that's where I started to notice is this is a gradual thing. So you accumulate information, you accumulate awareness, but then at times you want to go back to the old ways because they're so comfortable and they're so familiar. Mm. It's like, it's like two steps from, you know, to the front, a few steps back, two steps front, a few steps back, then maybe a few steps back and a few steps front. So it's not a straight line, but I believe the resources and the way the messages are delivered is so crucial, especially for young guys. Yeah. I was hard to interact with because if someone did not have results, I wasn't going to listen. Like if I'm going to listen to you, am I going to be in your position? Mm. If I listen to you, right? Am I going to have your power, your strength, your abilities? And so I didn't look up to anybody because I wasn't attracted to anyone that was talking to me. You see, the individuals yeah. that I was connecting with maybe had degrees, but didn't have money. Maybe someone had, you know, life experience, but didn't take care of themselves physically. So mm. there was no credibility to the speakers. Yeah. Until it clicked. And I was like, wow, I could be that guy. I could actually be the guy I was looking for this whole time. I could mm. become that person. And it took a while for all these elements to align. But I knew I had to have substance. I didn't want to just go up and try to help people based on perception and based on you know what I thought worked or based on what something in a book said. Mm. So it took time for me to connect all these pieces together. And I'm not saying I'm a completed project, but I'm levels ahead of where I started. I'm 12 years in the business. And the information that I have is very, very reliable. And I live it every single day. Mm. Um, and I feel like using the social media platform is something that helps individuals see the behind the scenes of the life of an individual that actually has been through some things, overcame some things. People watch my page and they think, I'm this rich, young, tattooed guy, right? And it's far from it. Hmm. far from it this is the this is what they this is the end result of years of suffering and pain and you know i i got to a point where there was not only homicidal ideation right wanting to hurt people and projecting my insecurities onto others right hmm. there was at points suicidal elements too yeah and so this is something that i struggled <laughs> to even communicate out in the open for a while right because hmm. you walk around you tell a bunch of guys hey man i thought about killing myself and everybody's looking different at you really yeah. oh you're weak and then the labels start to come up mm. but the reality is a lot of individuals that are at different stages in their life journey and if you're used to suppressing pain all you're doing is you're filling your pain bucket yeah. this is how i i view the main movers and shakers in every human brain are pain and pleasure mm. these are the two driving factors any decision you make is either driven by pursuit of pain or pleasure because some individuals are addicted to pain. And so that's their comfort zone. It sounds illogical to say, but if you study someone's patterns, you'd notice, you know, yeah, their definitely. relationship with victimhood, right? Mm. That's their norm. You know, life is happening to me in a way. Yeah. Right? Life is not fair. And so that's kind of the, 
the dialogue that you have with your head. Or you're basically driven to avoid pain or pleasure. Mm. So the brain's two main mechanisms are pain and pleasure. So if, if you realize over a series of events, you take all this pain and you bury it. You take all this pain and you bury it. Mm. Your pain bucket reached its capacity. And that's what suicidal ideation is. The, yeah. the brain starts to send a message and states, well, if I can't kill the pain, maybe I need to kill the carrier of the pain. Mm. And so, yes, it's definitely illogical. It's definitely going to be evaluated as a sign of weakness. But in truth, the real good listeners, the individuals with awareness, they know. Yeah. That's an individual that's carrying a lot of pain, not a lot of pleasure. Pleasure. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I also want to ask a question that you touched on before, because I think this is an important piece for people that are seeking help and also maybe trying to recover from addiction because it relates to me in my past. I was, because when I was a former drug addict, I was so addicted to pain and I couldn't look up to anyone because I felt like no one could help me and there was no role model I wanted to help or that I could use to help me. What was that thing that helped you click? Because for me, when people ask me that question, like what made you quit drugs? I always say it wasn't the one moment in my life. It was a buildup of little things over a certain period of time, which eventually triggered the curiosity in my mind to make me think differently. So what was that for you? And what do you find with the people you work with? For me, it wasn't the substances because prior to the substance use, mm. there was always a transaction that happened. You see, I had an experience of like abandonment and neglect early on in life. Yeah. And so that's where my pain came from. So the brain starts to look for ways to soothe this pain. And when you don't have awareness and insight that there's a wounded inner self, you start to look for it in people, you look for it in substances, you look for it in different ways. Mm. So for me, for me, it was women. For me, it was relationships. And I would go through relationships quickly, right? Yeah. And subconsciously, I would pick unavailable people. I would mm. pick people that were emotionally unavailable. And once they became available, the high was so intense, the pleasure was so intense that I would just enjoy it. Mm -hmm. The issue was when these relationships were severed, when separation happens, that's what would activate you know, the panic. And I call this love withdrawal because just like you're withdrawing from a drug, the intensity of the separation is so scary and dangerous. And in my case, <laughs> it led to substance use. Oh, okay, yep. It wasn't the other way around. For me, it was primarily separation, primarily loss, something that I felt like was creating some level of comfort or a connection, right? The intimacy piece. And when I lost it, and that's what I noticed over time is every time I went, the first separation was the hardest. Hmm. I mean, complete self-sabotage, you know, abusing alcohol. I mean, sub, whatever substance was available. I didn't have a craving for drugs. I had a craving for avoidance. Yeah. You see, it took time for me to connect these dots. But when you look back at your patterns or what we call defining moments, I've noticed there was a series of events. And that's what I recommend to everybody that's you know listening or watching or has an issue with a substance. Try not to focus so much on your use because your use is the action, but it's triggered by something else. Hmm. Okay, so it's either the presence or the absence of something. So we'll say it this way. The word relapse is an action word, right? Yeah. Relapse. Re means repeat something. So what precedes a relapse? Usually it's either an emotion or a thought. 
So mm. when you have a lapse in thinking, when you have a lapse in an emotion that's not checked or interrupted, it could grow into a relapse. Yeah. And so when you walk backwards and you start to study your major defining moments and you start to ask, well, what's common between all these events? For me, it was separation. For mm. me, it was grief and loss, which revealed my tolerance for separation was low. And my relationship with self is compromised. Yeah. Those become the areas to work on instead of actually addressing substance issues, substance related issues. Mm. You'll notice that a lot in rehabs, right? Like, or, or settings where individuals get institutionalized. They focus heavily on the actions, what you should have done, what you could have done. So, or they teach you how to do something. Yeah. Before you learn the how or you accumulate tools, you need to know the why. Mm. Failure to recognize the why or understand the patterns that lead to this path, it means nothing because you're walking around with a bunch of tools that you don't know when to use and how to use yeah. and why you need to use them. Mm. It defeats the purpose. So, so my comments and my posts and the way that I operate as a provider, you know, is heavily related to the phase, the first phase, the first phase, which is enhancing awareness, enhancing, you know, insight on your whys before we come up with a blueprint or a formula to diffuse, uh, mm. you know, the relief seeking pieces through substances. Yeah. And with like people who have family members who are experiencing addiction, how can they go about actually supporting them and getting them through that journey of maybe recovery or even just awareness to their behaviors or habits? Do you believe it's more so focusing on what's not in their life at the moment that needs healing, like stuff from the past? Or is it more so focusing on the addiction itself? A lot of time, it varies from case to case. So when I consult with families, a lot of times I get families that reach out and say, hey, my son's got this problem. My daughter's got this problem. My husband's got this problem. So the element here is, okay, someone's noticing sabotage-based behavior. Someone's noticing self-destruction. Someone's noticing this is getting out of hand, right? And mm. it's a cry for help. And they say, we need to figure something out. Every case is different. So when it comes to families, they don't even have awareness themselves. Mm. And the family shouldn't be the leading motivating factor into guiding someone into recovery because unfortunately there's a lot of resentments between family members. There's a lot of untold stories. There's a lot of unprocessed stuff. So the message coming from someone in the family actually creates more resistance for the individual, mm. creates more resentment for the individual. And you may say, well, are you recommending that they need to hit rock bottom? They need to actually crash. Well, watching them from a distance, trying to connect them to resources. And at sometimes if it's voluntary, that's what you could do is, is, harm reduction or damage control mm. from a space. And if, it, if it's so severe and it's so intense that you can't sit and watch it, you have to do an involuntary piece, mm. right? You get the law involved. You do wellness checks. You uh, involuntarily get someone to go to a psych ward. It varies from case to case yeah. based on severity, based on substance, based on age, based on a lot of factors. It varies. Mm. Yeah. But no, I yeah. recommend the family being the ones that are leading uh, sources into recovery for someone, because you could be preventing them from reaching the gift of desperation as well. Mm. Suffering is a prerequisite to awareness. You know, mm. it, it's, it's necessary. And a lot of times families love their loved ones so much that they get in the way of them experiencing the, light, the right level of suffering to see, mm. to request that. 
yeah, it defeats well, the purpose in a way in some cases. That's very interesting because speaking about myself, um, when I first got clean from drugs, the thing that made me switch and start that journey was because it finally came from me. Like I felt like it was the first thing I was in control of rather than other people trying to direct me where to go. And once I had that sense of like, I'm in control here, it finally felt like I started to step into my masculinity more and be able to have that drive in my life. And that's what kind of drove me into sobriety as well. You find that a lot with the work you do as well? 100%. Mm. A lot of times it's just awareness that's missing. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, like your habit, the individual's habit is, and their primary focus is relief seeking. Mm. That's all. Their, re, their brain is so hypersensitive to survival. Right. The individuals are not surviving when they're actively living this way. They're just surviving. They're not thriving. Mm. And so they don't even believe thriving exists. Right. And a lot and a lot of times and they believe this method of operation is the norm. This is safe. This is familiar. We know they know that it's mm. illogical. They understand it's unhealthy. They understand they're delaying the inevitable. They understand that. Mm. but they still resort back to what's familiar. They resort back to escapism. Mm. And that's what happens, unfortunately. Something has to take place. Mm. Usually it's loss-based, loss of freedom, loss of a loved one, a loss of mobility. Um, you know, I have individuals that I've served that end up getting diagnosed with sclerosis of the liver. And you'd see this individual's like stage four. And the doctor's literally getting in his face and saying, listen, you need six months clean to even be considered to be listed on a liver transplant. Mm. And that's not enough for some guys. Yeah. Because you're telling someone that's impulsive and has an instant gratification issue to wait six months to even be considered for a liver transplant. That's automatically like, mm. well, if I'm going to, if I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to make this. Why not just continue doing this? Cases <laughs> like this, I recommend institutionalization, you know, going into structured settings for six months plus to separate the person physically from having access to the substance. Mm. Do you think also it can relate to people being addicted to pain and chaos as well? 100%, of course, mm. because that's the norm, because that's what's familiar. Mm. I'd rather do what I know. I have individuals that come in and say, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. I want to learn how to be happy. So they think that this guy is going to teach them how to be happy. The reality is everything exists in duality, right? There's always yeah. an opposite. So if you're telling me you want to be happy, that means you've mastered the art of being sad, right? Mm -hmm. So the questions would be as follows. How long have you been sad for? What creates your sadness? What's in the sadness for you? Are you really ready to leave sadness because it's still familiar? And that's where a lot of anxiety happens. You're separating from your coping mechanism and your defense mechanisms and, you and you're getting into something completely uncertain. Mm -hmm. That's very threatening. Yeah. And that's where the relationship with the provider is so crucial. That's why the person helping or guiding through the process has to have familiarity with mm -hmm. what this individual is going through internally in silence. This is deeper than a commitment, brother. This is deeper than, yes, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Like, this, this is uh, sometimes from moment to moment uh, where the individual requires distraction, good habits, structured settings, and at the same time, reinforcement and inspiration. Yeah. So building rapport with the person, knowing that I self-disclose all the time with my guys, right? 
and I basically let them know this is very common. This is familiar. I've experienced this personally. And here's what I've experienced. And here's what you're going to experience. And I want you mm-hmm. to know when you go through something, you contact me and myself. As soon as you have a weak moment, you message me and yeah. we get through that. And so that's what happens is you need to give the individual a feeling of someone's got your back. Yeah, definitely. Right? Someone's, someone's going to like, someone gets it and someone is reminding you what you're feeling is impermanent. It's a phase. And you simply need to use the resources until you pass that phase and you get into the next round. Mm. I feel like that having if you have someone that has your back, I feel like that can provide a new safety net than relying on the habits that aren't serving you. Very valid. Very valid. Mm. You know, our population is hypersensitive to trust, right? The biggest issue I notice with, with the population I serve is the trust factor, right? Um, mm. Think about history of trauma. Think about history of, I mean, you've engaged in self-abuse and self-destruction for so long. You don't trust yourself. How can you trust a stranger, right? So that's the logic. And that's why you need to speak to the wounded person in that individual and let them know, I am someone you could trust. But how can they trust you? And that's where you basically display the ability to build rapport with someone. And, and that's why I'm, I'm a big advocate for social media because people get to see. Yeah. They see everything. They see if you fall, they see if you go up. And that mm. creates accountability, I feel. Yeah. A lot of my guys that I've get, been getting recently are followers. Mm. You know, they see this individual. He gets up, he does his thing, he eats clean, he spends time with the family, he's working. He's providing feedback. He reads. They're seeing the lifestyle, right? And and what happens is like, oh, wow, this is actually real. Like someone is living this way. This is doable, mm. right? You're displaying it. You're not, you're not just going to a facility and witnessing someone in a freaking cult yeah. talking, using big terms and providing them with handouts or PowerPoint presentations and saying, here's how it's done. See mm. you later. Yeah, that's so I, true. Yeah, because with my... Um, podcast and my page on Instagram and all my social medias, I feel like that helps me stay accountable for not going back to my old habits because I've been sober now for eight years. And I feel like because my mission is to help people in the space that I was once in, it helps to keep me accountable to not misdirect myself to go back there. So it helps me stay aware of my actions. Yeah, it's an added piece of protection. Mm. Um, I firmly believe in that because a lot of our guys need to get out of like their hypnotic rhythms, you know, a lot of their negative mindsets and I get in them, but I have to display what I do. Like no Mm. matter what mood I'm in, I still show up. No matter what experience I'm having, I still show up. I still Mm. do what I do. I'm still showing up. When someone who sees this, they start to develop trust. Okay, maybe this person has the blueprint. Maybe this person can teach me a few things. And that's all it is. It's buying into this process and understanding that I am missing insight. I am missing formulas. And it's beyond the motivation because motivation isn't sufficient. Mm. Someone could say a few nice quotes. Perfect. That will serve you for a few hours. And then what? Yeah. You see, there's, there's this idea of tolerance that our population needs to learn how to build. Any area in your life you're weakest in is where your tolerance is lowest. Mm. So, for example, let's say you get to you go to a, a pain specialist. I mean, how does a pain specialist measure your pain? They give you a pain scale, right, with ton, 10 different looking faces, and they ask you to pick a face. The face that you pick reveals your tolerance to pain. 
And so your perception of pain is heavily connected to your tolerance level. So if you pick the, in the within the first three, four, that suggests you have a high tolerance for pain. And if you pick eight, nine, 10, that suggests you have a low tolerance for pain. So your perception of pain is heavily connected to tolerance. Yeah. So mm. if someone has an avoidance tendency, guess what you got to do? You got to ask them to create a list of elements they avoid. And mm. then they rate the list from least to highest. And you slowly go with the lowest and you build their tolerance thresholds, just like you go to a gym. It's the same thing. It's in the gray matter in your brain. You know, the center in your brain that deals with emotions from lack of use, it shrinks. Mm. If you're constantly avoiding something, your tolerance for it shrinks. So if you stop going to the gym, for example, right, and you're used to maybe benching a certain amount of weight, you don't show up for six months, you're going to go back to that level. You're going to start from a really low level or you're going to get injured. And so the brain has to be treated with fragility, respect, and it has to have a plan because like trauma work, for example, I see a lot of individuals seven days clean, 10 days clean, and they're telling me, I need to resolve some trauma, and I know that's my issue. Mm. Well, you don't have the capacity, the mental capacity for that. You're going to relapse because you're going to open up a high-intense experience that you've suppressed for so long, and you're about to face it with a low cognitive budget. Mm. Your brain's going to snap. Your brain's going to tell you, oh, shit, let's run. Let's actually find relief, and then you relapse again. Mm. So rule of thumb for me is my guys have to get at least six months plus of complete abstinence, meaning in six months, they figured out a way to live with day-to-day -day, day -day life inconveniences, setbacks. They've had those little wins. Mm. And then we start opening up specific elements to discuss. You got to earn the position to actually have those uncomfortable conversations. It's a liability issue. Mm. Do you see? Yeah. I like how you use the word like respect your brain. Because the things that you do is going to in turn respect yourself, which is going to get, get good outputs in your life too. And you said before about drive and resilience. What was it that helped you stay driven and resilient to keep showing up on the days you don't feel like it? You know, I've never had to um, build resilience, I feel, for wanting to face life. Mm. I just had it misdirected. Mm. Okay. The intensity, I've always had it. I just had to find the right path. And with this population that we serve, everybody's got intensity. And I'll tell you why. If you're driving yourself into self-destruction, that's intense shit. Mm. Okay? That's intense. For you to find a way to deceive yourself and consume a substance that's going to destroy your organs, your livelihood, your relationships, your well-being, your potential growth, that's intense. Mm. And so... Our popu this population specifically is a very intense population. Yeah. I just feel like it's misdirected. Mm. I'm no special. I tell my guys all the time, I'm not that special. All that happened is there's a series of events, just like you had a series of events. I got to a point where my awareness developed and I decided to do something with that. I mm. made a decision to do something with that. That's all it is. So they find and some of the best ways to find that direction that's going to serve you is to go and seek help and speak to someone to get a different perspective and guidance. hundred percent seeking mm. the right mentors, the right individuals that have been through it. You have to be picky. It's like sponsorship. You know, we recommend a lot of our individuals to go to like fellowship, meetings, right? Go to AA, go to NA, go to smart recovery, go to Dharma recovery, get involved in a fellowship. 
you know, scan the room. Mm. Pick an individual that is attractive because mm. you need to pick someone that has something you don't have and stick to that individual. Spend time with them. Call them. Hang mm. out with them once a week. Ask them what they do, right? Watch them communicate. Watch them carry themselves. And automatically, you adopt their traits. And that is, that's a beautiful thing. That's what sponsorship is all about. You don't just get someone that's going to keep you clean. Because mm. there's a difference between a sober person and a person in recovery. Yeah. Right? Being abstinent is not the same thing as being actively working towards change. They're two different experiences. Mm. Because you could substitute your substance addiction with a process addiction. You're just physically clean, but you're still distracting and avoiding in different forms. Yeah. You see? And that shows how important your environment is as well. Because the famous saying you are, you become the five people you hang around. But if you seek the right mentor, you start, like you say, you start to model in their habits. You start to model their things they do that serve them in their life. And you start to grow to that. And then from there on, you can keep finding other people that you want to succeed into. Right. It develops. And then they could connect you with their people. You know, in the beginning, you need to tap into awareness, right? Before you start working on anything else, you need to start understanding why you're getting in your own way. Yeah. Why, why am I getting in my own way? That's a wonderful question to ask. Like in my book, I, I, wrote, I, wrote, I wrote a book on, you know, recovery, right? But I had my own view of recovery. I don't see recovery as recovering from a substance. I see recovery as recovering the whole self. Yeah. Okay. The word recovery simply suggests there's something there that you're trying to recover. Mm. So I feel like our understanding of the term sometimes is so limited to substance-based issues that we miss the whole picture. And we're only focusing on that picture, right? Is how do I get clean? It's mm. deeper than that. It's deeper That's than that. That's so true because like, why is this person abusing this substance in the first place or whatever it is they're addicted to? It's because usually they're trying to fill a void that they don't have any other way on how to treat or cope with. Right. So in the book, the second part of the book, I created a 30-day um, exercise. So mm. it's 30 questions in 30 days. And the individuals advised every day to answer one question. And the questions are related to self-assessment. The questions are designed to let you know why you get in your own way. And it's usually related to two main elements. You're either cognitively entangled with something. You're too attached to stories, ideas, belief structures, thinking styles that don't serve you. Or you're in a constant state of avoiding certain thoughts or certain feelings. Mm. The questions are designed to help the individual study themselves. And which self are they studying? The lower version, the version that gets them to create negative habits and self-destruction because if you're in a fight let's say right you're uh, a boxer and mm. you're about to go and train for a specific uh, match you're going to do your work but at the same time you need to study your opponent yeah. you need to see what your opponent is good at you need to see what your opponent's weakest points are you need to start understanding how they move how they mm. operate how they think and when you do this you're going to perform much better so instead of blindly going into a fight, right, just training and doing all the necessary things, you could have the best coach on the planet. But if you're going in with uncertainty on who you're facing, it's pretty risky. <laughs> That's so true. It's like with the things that challenges in our life, if we don't actually study them to understand them, we're not going to truly 
like we can get all the mechanisms in the world to fight it, but we don't understand the opponent and the mechanisms might not work. And that's the whole concept behind how I operate. I want my people to know you're in your own way. And mm. there's a version of you that's been trained. That's so strong and you need to find a way to beat it. And in mm. order for you to beat anything, you have to become very familiar with it, how it moves, how it thinks, how it operates patterns. You need to study the patterns of that self and diffuse it. Yeah. And that's how it works. So that's why I believe firmly in studying the self, the part of the self that got you into the state that you're in before you actually develop the new self. A lot of times you'd find individuals adopt new methods. They're learning new things mm. and they're habitually constructing a good version, supposedly. But the intention behind it is compensation based. Mm. You're not going to maintain that guy. You're not, because at some point, the old guy is going to come out and knock you out. Yeah. So this is the idea is how do I become familiar with him? How do I learn how to diffuse him and still adopt traits and with the right intention, establish the new version, not from a compensation standpoint, like aligning intention with action is huge for me. Mm. I don't care about the actions alone because if they're not driven by the right motives, you're going to crash. Yeah, because it's not actually serving you or fulfilling you. They're gonna, you're going to crash. You'll see a lot of successful guys. I have some high-profile cases, you know, with, with in, my, in my practice. These guys are like CEO levels and higher. And you'd notice and you'd see, wow, this individual is a huge success in the social department, you know, in the career world. But his family life is compromised. His physical health is compromised. His yeah. mental health is compromised. His spiritual growth is compromised. So you'd see his success is actually a compensation for all these other elements in his life. Mm. That's not a complete balanced well human being. That's not. Despite the success, despite the car he drives, despite the locations he, he, he travels and he visits, he's an unhappy individual. Mm. And for like, yeah, for sure. And for like those people that just say, but I've just got a, an addictive personality. So I'm always drawn to things. What's your perspective on addictive personality? We're all addicted. Some yeah. of us are willing to admit it. Some <laughs> of us are not. So addiction, primarily, if you really understand the motive behind the term addicted, right? Mm. Your lower self is always addicted to something. Okay. This the addicted personality simply suggests that you're looking for a label to justify why you're not being effective and you know why you're not where you're supposed to be in life it's just an mm. excuse okay and yes there's traits that sabotage your own progress but at the same time you need to recognize everybody's addicted whether they want to admit it or not whether they're aware of it or not mm. what are we addicted to well the human brain's main design is comfort seeking yeah so if even if the consequences aren't as profound as someone that's abusing substances think about someone that's addicted to consuming you know uh, really really poor food like having a poor diet uh, addicted to procrastination addicted mm. to justification addicted to staying in unhealthy relationships addicted to staying in a job that doesn't compensate you well everybody's addicted in a way to comfort yeah and they find it in different forms. Some elements don't have a same or like a similar profound effect like substances. But in reality, if you study someone's lifestyle, you'd see. Hmm. My, 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 my issue is it's okay to be addicted 
but drive your addiction into elements that you could be addicted to personal growth. What's yeah. wrong with that? You could be addicted to developing yourself to the highest potential. What's wrong mm. with that? Yeah. But it has to be balanced. So when you think about the human, there's five dimensions that I feel like every human must invest in. You got the physical element, you got the mental one, the emotional one, the social one, and the spiritual one. Mm. So you could be obsessed with building all of your dimensions. Everybody's going to benefit from that because you're feeling great investing in you and you're going to be able to give back what you have. Mm. You'll give back what's in you. Yeah. And the bottom line to beat this condition and to be in an active state of recovery, the prerequisite is surrendering the old version and at some point acquiring the gift and mm. then giving it back. Like only by giving it back, you get to keep it. Mm. It's like when you give your best version to yourself and constantly put that work within yourself, the people around you are only going to benefit from that. And the thing is, you're the one that's benefiting the most from it because you're constantly working on yourself and fulfilling you and making sure that you're feeling your yeah. best most of the time. I know as humans, we can't feel great 100% of the time, but majority of the time we are. And when we aren't, we know the things to do to overcome when we aren't. Yeah, I say this to a lot of people. Selfishness is a prerequisite to selflessness. Mm. Okay, you, you know, you'll notice people pleasers in a way are always trying to you know, attend to others' needs and they call it people-pleasing when in reality, it's self-pleasing and it's manipulative. And I'll explain it to you. Yeah. The outcome, the outcome of successfully pleasing someone else is you pleasing yourself. You benefit from making someone else happy. So mm. in reality, it's pretty manipulative to call it people-pleasing. And there's nothing <laughs> authentic about it, only for those that know. We are in positions, when you understand the law of exposure, you know. Hmm. once you see something you can't unsee it so just yeah. like you have eight years clean you've seen some things that you can't unsee and if you violate what you know the amount of shame and guilt that you're going to carry is amplified because Definitely. you know hmm. and so that's what i'm trying to incorporate here is you know we need awareness we need individuals to start seeing and once they see something they can't unsee it mm. with this awareness how early on should we start speaking to the youth about the awareness to addiction and personality and these traits and habits, like is it what age is too early and what age is appropriate to start this conversation? You know, for me, I don't feel like it's an age issue. I feel like mm. it's depends on the person, right? Like there's, I started really early. Like I was around 12, 13 years old and I knew something was wrong. Right. Mm. I had a lot of aggression. I had a lot of violence in me. I mean, I stabbed the kid when I was 12 years old. That mm. was my first stabbing ever. Yeah. Okay. It was, pretty traumatic and you'd wonder where did this come from where did this violence come from why would someone do this why would a kid do this mm. so I, I had no guidance i had a lot of neglect issues i had a lot of emotional abandonment issues and i manifested it by hurting people that upset mm. me i didn't really walk around hurting people but you check me it was an opportunity for me to express all the shit that i suppressed yeah and that's what happened unfortunately i didn't know that at the time Hmm. So for me, I feel like in school systems, maybe educating people on mission statements, right? The idea of what is the purpose of your existence and starting hmm. to ask that question in a way, instead of telling someone what to think, having these open-ended questions and intentionally asking people, what are your, what is your mission statement? Why are you here? 
that forces that person to start studying what they want, what's in the way, how can they get to it? Do I have the resources for it? It opens up this whole spectrum mm. of thinking that can enhance awareness. My individuals that come in to see me, I automatically ask them to create a mission statement mm. because once they violate it, I pull it up and I make them read it. Yeah. You told me this mm. on this date at this time. Here's what you stated. You're in violation mode. Mm. What happened? Why would you compromise what you said on this date? And that forces them to see, oh, you know, I'm not upholding my standards. I'm violating what, I, what I'm saying. I'm not respecting my word. Mm. And, so, and so in a way, introducing it early, asking the right questions instead of guiding and educating. Yeah, asking you know? the right questions is important because it triggers our curiosity in the mind. Yeah, I mean, service work. Most likely you attend sites or schools or churches or facilities and you may speak. You give your time to maybe the youth, right? Mm. And a lot of times you're looked at as this who is this guy coming in here telling us some things the approach in my view would always be maybe talking to a couple of people in the crowd and started to asking them why would you join today did they force you to do this and in mm. a way starting it in a humorous based transaction especially with the youth and letting them feel like they're in charge because yeah. a lot of times they want to lead they don't want to follow yeah you see like feeding that lion inside that individual like a lot of times mm -hmm. it's just suppressed and you just have to follow this and you have to follow this plan and this rule and this is what's expected and this is what's correct. No, let's let an individual express themselves the way that they need and then help guide their energy. That's what mm -hmm. I feel like we do, guiding energy instead of educating or leading people. Mm, that's I agree with that completely because I've worked in youth work for a few years and I saw that with young men, being able to have them shift their energy into things that are going to serve them rather than just getting out a whiteboard and lecturing them about this is what you this is what happens when you smoke weed this is what happens when you abuse meth no. this like I, that was completely the wrong way to go about it and i saw that working in that space and it's like all these young men they have this energy within themselves that they need to express but they just need to find a way to express it that is going to serve them throughout life and it's just help them direct that yeah you imagine you're 15 16 17 18 someone's coming in you don't know them and they're coming in and to tell you some things about how bad something is yeah. really like that's mm -hmm. not effective that doesn't mm -hmm. speak to the level of that individual yeah it doesn't you know and that's the issue is you're trying to deter something and that individual may see well it's something i need to experience mm. instead of asking someone what their experience is what are your thoughts on this how do you feel like this would actually support your mission statement how would this get in the way of your mission statement they start to see their thoughts as investments yeah See? yeah and i feel like if you tell them like what to do and educate them it makes them go the other way because you want to rebel against it so it's better to guard yeah because the brain's designed to resist yeah the brain is designed to choose the path of least resistance that's that's the brain's job how do i mm. see comfort how do yeah. i find a way to justify this is not helping me right mm. and i'm gonna figure it out my way so it's pretty pretty good question but you know i feel like it's up to people like us that have insight and awareness to actually touch as many people as possible with our mm, approach definitely and like you said especially on those five pillars as well because i feel like sometimes the message can get mixed on what we should work on whether it's the physical mental emotional spiritual etc it's like no we've got to work on them all as a collective so we can actually change a whole state exactly you got individuals that have strength in the physical realm you might find someone that has strength in the social realm so you work mm -hmm. on the strength and you feed the weaknesses too. 
so you could help elevate them to be in a way a creative piece for the full spectrum of the person mm. balance is key in all of our affairs yeah but unfortunately the brain wants to compensate for something that's weak and it focuses on what is working and you go with that and you end up developing a relationship with it and it becomes your lifeline mm. you know think about athletes you know i have professional athletes that i see that end up getting injured as soon as their injuries kick in, what happens is the outlet or the avenue that they used to use to be productive and get all this um, accomplishment and dopamine is halted. Now mm. their strength is compromised and they're forced to look at other areas of their life that haven't been addressed. Yeah. Could be mental health. It could be family stuff. It could be childhood stuff. And then you wonder why. And they're thinking, oh, well, do the doctors prescribed opioids. Got it. The pain level was high. They were addressing the pain. But the brain doesn't know the difference between physical pain and emotional pain. As soon as you consume mm -hmm. an opioid or a pain-based substance, it's going to address both issues, yeah. the emotional and the physical piece. And a lot of times, individuals don't have that. So that person's probability of developing an addiction is amplified mm -hmm. because they're suppressing multiple things, even if they're not aware of it. Yeah. And I feel like when it comes to change as well, one of the challenging things that people find with the change is the level of discomfort that comes from it. So how can someone build the willingness to discomfort? Because I heard you talking about it on another podcast and I found it really interesting. So just like progressive overload is used in the gym, right? Yeah. At like physical fitness facilities, we have to use the same model for the mental health. If you don't recognize the relationship between avoidance and tolerance, you're not going to get through when it comes to recovery. Mm. Recovery is all about accepting life on life's terms, right? There's going to be inconveniences. There's going to be setbacks. Yeah. So when these, not if, when these things hit, do you have a system? Do you have a response style to actually incorporate when you're confronted with these things without you choosing a compromised route? So what we're doing is we have to have a, a habitual system, principles that are daily implemented to build that tolerance until the events happen. So you, you know, like one of my mentors always states this, you don't grow into your goals. You don't gain your goals. You fall back into the strength of your system. Mm. So you have to constantly be in preparation mode for those events because you will endure losses. You will experience setbacks and suffering. But do you have a system that has the right level of tolerance to withhold yourself and your standards until that phase passes? Mm. See? Yeah. It's like, so, uh, mm -hmm. oh, sorry, you keep going. So with relation to building willingness, mm. right? We have to, first of all, when I incorporate the concept of willingness, a lot of times my patients don't know the difference between willingness and ability, mm. right? Everybody's able to change, but not everybody's willing. Yeah. And the key component here, it's always connected to tolerance. So if your discomfort threshold is low, your willingness potential is low. So in order for you to build willingness, you have to choose the elements of discomfort the individual avoids, rank them like we, like we stated prior, and mm. slowly work from the bottom up. Mm. I'm going to focus on those strengths as well and build them up because if you, I found with the work I do, especially with myself in the past, I used to try with myself, focus on building my weaknesses, but I never had the strength to even overcome any challenges because none of my strengths were strong enough to help me overcome the challenges I was facing. So once I started focusing on my strengths, then my weaknesses were able to become stronger. 
Right. You know, like the fellowship, for example, a lot of times people ask, well, what's the point of going to a meeting and constantly repeating um, what I'm going through? Mm. What happens is the more that you talk about something, the more that you express something, the intensity it has on you shrinks. Yeah. Right. Think about grief and loss, for example. Like when you lose someone, you go through various stages, right? Mm. Denial, shock, bargaining, depression, anger, etc. until you reach a stage of acceptance. You don't get to acceptance unless you actually talk and express all those feelings throughout these stages. Mm. You can't skip a stage. And so the more that you go and talk, and the more that you communicate about something, the intensity it has or the effect it has on you shrinks. Mm. And that's what's building tolerance as well. But we're not recommending someone gets entangled with their story and keeps repeating their pain over and over and over again to prevent them from action. No, we're doing it for the right intention. We're mm. doing it so we skip through the stages and pass through this slowly until we reach the stage of acceptance. Mm, that's so true. And I'm very um, glad you shared that. And I also wanted to hear more about your war acronym that you had as well. So when an individual comes in and states to me, I want to change. I want to be this version. I want to do so-and-so. I'm usually mm. assessing the, the, the war acronym with them. I'm looking at their willingness thresholds their abilities, and I'm looking at their readiness. So mm. I assess all three. Anytime someone's refusing or resisting to actually begin the process of change, they're either missing one or more of these elements. Yeah. So most of the people that come in, they have an ability, they have access to resources, and they say that they're ready, but they don't have the willingness. Mm. So they won't move forward unless they get the willingness to match their ability and their readiness. Mm. And these are all invisible items because if you don't talk about them and you don't separate them this way and explain it to the can't you know the consumer that's coming in to see you, they're gonna think, oh, it's just a commitment issue. Yeah. Oh, it's just I'm gonna put some money on it. No, there's like legitimate inner dialogue work that has to happen. And you have to understand that before you accept something, there's an attachment to resistance. Mm, and like you said, speaking can help and bring it into existence. Hundred percent. If you speak mm. with the right person that actually understands dynamic, right? The dynamics of change. Change mm. isn't something that you just suddenly because you uh, had an overdose and you feel bad and you're ashamed and you're like, okay, now I got to make a move. That's not, a, that's not sufficient. There has to be more to it than that, mm. right? Are you willing to actually endure this process, you know, purpose over pleasure? Are you willing to actually have intentional adversity pursuit every day because if you think you're going through change to stop some form of suffering through a substance and you're not going to endure any suffering it's not going to work yeah and that's what switches is you switch the individual's unnecessary suffering into necessary suffering mm. that's the shift in mindset is this is non-negotiable i have to pursue discomfort and suffering that's necessary in these realms in order for me to eliminate unnecessary suffering yeah you see the I, shift in the mindset yeah definitely and I, I can see how that would work especially with basically nearly everyone i think that's why it's important to find someone that you really connect with when it comes to getting support and help because some people can go to a psychologist or whatever it is once not connect with that person then tell themselves they're completely off going again because it psychology or therapy doesn't work for them but it comes down to relationship building and find the right person that you want to seek guidance from right professionals you know are trained to diagnose a lot of professionals are trained 
how do I explain this? You know, label elements and yeah. find ways to confirm uh, the pain that someone is feeling. And that model doesn't work. Yeah. So I'm not saying all, but in a way, you'll meet a lot of individuals that come in and say, well, I've seen this therapist. I've had a bad taste for therapy in prior because all they did was listen to me and just, you know, don't give me any, any guidance. They don't give me any insight. They don't make me feel like they have a plan or a formula. They're just letting me speak. Hmm. And so therapy does assist with that. But unfortunately, if you're not as a provider disputing or, you know, directing the conversation to lead the individual to noticing their attachment to the story hmm. or the purpose behind their share or what they're accomplishing, because they could be reinforcing their relationship with their pain. Hmm. And sometimes that's confused because you think as a provider, you have to be compassionate, right? Like I have to be compassionate here and just listen. Unfortunately, compassion isn't enough. Yeah. Okay. It has to be a balance between compression and compassion. You have to push and pull, push and pull. It's an art. It's like you know, tug you of war. Like, hmm. Exactly, man. It's, it's, it's an art. Literally, yeah. it's an art. Learning how to ask, learning how to listen, learning when to intervene, learning what to say, learning what, you know, how to ask open-ended questions. It's a process because the outcome finally is what is the aim at the end of the day? You want the individual that's coming to see you to suffer less. Mm. And how do you build those skills of that art of tug of war, the compression and compassion? And also how do you continue to learn and grow as well? You know, it depends for every person. It's for me, it was experience. You know, for me, it was a lot of errors. Yeah. A lot of errors. For me, what I feel like also worked was choosing a specific system and mastering it. Mm. Um, instead of learning 12, 13 models of therapy, pick one and, and stick with it. Specialize yeah. in one specific theme. So there's like CBT models, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy. There's person-centered approaches, solution-focused approaches. I work out of the ACT model, acceptance and commitment therapy. Hmm. Okay. So I had to basically pursue further education in that specific model. And I believe it works and I apply it and I demonstrate it and I educate people on it. And so that's what I feel like would work the best is for you as a helper Master a specific formula or a specific blueprint, live it, portray it, show it, showcase it, personify the teaching yeah. in a way, and then help someone adopt it. Mm, 100%. I feel like with myself too, when I'm learning something, I always want to give my learnings to other people as soon as I acquire it. Obviously, when I fully understand what I'm going to say to someone, but as soon as I understand that information, I'm so eager to be able to push that to people that I know that will benefit from it. Right. You know, there's also a level of humility and a limitation that we need to be mindful of when it comes to providing service. Yeah. You know, you're responsible for delivery, but you're mm. not responsible for receipt. Yeah. So the individual's ability to receive a message is on them. Yeah. So no matter how good your message is, no matter how strong your message is, the other party has to play their role. They have mm -hmm. to be willing to receive too. Yeah. And I feel like I've seen in this mental health industry, a lot of counselors can burn themselves out because of that reason as well because they feel like they're not doing enough or they don't feel worthy enough and they start sparring that down onto themselves and then blame themselves for that is that something you've experienced or do you do things that can help you keep that awareness so you don't fall down that path it depends on the candidate as well you know yeah. let's say a trauma, trauma 
trauma victim comes in. A lot of times there's going to be a lot of listening in the beginning. So they could actually have a chance to share their story, right? And then you start to locate themes of attachment to the story. And then at some point, they have to find the right time to dispute. For someone else, it could be 20 rehabs in and they have all the information in the world, but they're not implementing. So I have to step it up on the implementation realm. So it varies from case to case. Um, But I I do my best not to personalize why someone isn't making progress. Mm. And usually when I notice lack of progress or lack of movement, I communicate it to the person and I share with them what I'm witnessing. I Mm. share with them what I notice is the barrier. I don't judge them or criticize them for it. I simply say, here's what you're doing that's not allowing you to get to the next level. And this is an area I highly suggest you spend a little more time reflecting on. And don't come back and see me unless you have a desire to discuss this. Mm. You see, it's like coming up with a program, a diet program for somebody, and you're telling them, here's your macros, here's what you need to eat, and do not get past this point. And they constantly do it. Yeah. You're not going to be there sitting with that person, feeding them, tracking their food. No, they have to follow the plan Mm. because it works, right, in order for them to get to the next level. That's a definitely willing... Yeah, you don't want to enable the person yeah. and constantly see them and they're not making any effort. Sometimes we have to be willing to confront and dispute lack of progress, even if it's going to hurt the patient for a few, yeah. you know, or the consumer or, or, or the mentee, you know, whoever it is that you're working with. But you got to confront people on their lack of effort. You got yeah. to. Well, that helps with accountability as well. That's and why commitment. they hired you. Yeah. That's why they hire you. <laughs> Right, they're not hiring someone that's gonna accommodate their shortcomings. They're hiring yeah. someone that's gonna tell them, "Hey, listen, man, you know, we talked about this. You're constantly violating what we discussed. What's going on? Yeah, maybe we need to put the relationship on hold until you develop the readiness, and then we'll reconnect." Hmm. That's epic, man. I'm just being aware of time, but I appreciate your time for coming on the podcast today, man. I'd love to hear what some books that you really love that have made an impact on you. If you do read or listen to books. It varied in the beginning. I was heavily involved into um, spirituality-based uh, literature. I wanted to understand the underlying factors, right? The, the invisible stuff. A wonderful book that I read was called The Reality of Being. Mm. It, uh, written by one of the followers of a famous teacher named uh, George Gurdjieff. I'm going to write that down. That book was very profound. Um, put things into perspective with relation to awareness. Mm. Another book um, that I find very helpful and I recommend it all the time to clients called uh, uh, The Obstacle is the Way by mm. Ryan Holiday. Oh, he's great. So that's that's a book I highly recommend because it's easy to read. You know, a lot of times the consumer also has a certain level of education that you want to honor and and respect because not everybody can comprehend certain type of literature you know yeah definitely another book another book i'm big on poetry and art Mm. i read a lot of like poetry primarily not just educational stuff because it intentionally forces you to reflect beyond your brain Mm. right it's so artistic that it forces you to go beyond just the threshold of cognition uh it was it's called the prophet Mm. that book is pretty profound too um i actually I have two copies that I've signed and dated for my daughters. When they're older, that's what I'm leaving behind for them. That's epic. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I feel like it changed my perspective on relationship mm. with self, people, the world, 
higher power elements. And, you know, there's a lot of answers in it if you really dive into it. It's not mm. direct, but it forces you to go within. I found that with the book, The Way of the Superior Men by David Dieter. That brought a lot of shifts for me personally. That's one of my favorite books of all time. Yeah, that's a great book. Outwitting the Devil is a really good book as mm. well because it focuses on the two versions of the self too. Uh, profound, profound content in that one as well. Mm. It's very interesting that you said poetry because I'm the same, but with rap music, like some certain individuals in rap and the way they're able to articulate a message through music, like yeah. that relates to me a lot as well. So it's, art. it's amazing. It's, it's, it's art. the art of communicating pain and distress. The best songs out there have pain in them. <laughs> They don't yeah. have pleasure primarily, Definitely. right? Yeah. <laughs> so our relationship with pain is what we need to address when it comes to recovery and understanding pain is okay as long as it's attached to a certain type of purpose and it's aligned mm. with clean intentions because yeah. it could be easily turned into sabotage and justification, right? Of Definitely. destruction. Yeah. Another really recommended good. another recommended book is Manifestations by Mo Hassoun as well. <laughs> you know, the book is specifically dedicated for individuals that want to know why uh, avoidance cravings are established, why mm. they happen, um, what happens behind the scenes, even if family members are interested in understanding the dynamics behind an addicted brain, right? Yeah. There's a lot of good content in there. So the book is split into two parts. The first part's on addiction, the whys, the hows, and the second part is on prevention and, you know, eliminating the response, poor response to relapse traps. And it talks mm -hmm. a lot about codependency and denial, resentments, reservations, doubt. And there's a specific section in there that I feel makes a huge difference for clients mm -hmm. on shifting their mindset from evaluation to observation. I feel like that's a big piece of the yeah. inner dialogue puzzle mm -hmm. as well. Mm. For the listeners here as well, if you listen to this episode and you align with what Mo was talking about, rather, it reflects within yourself, it reflects in the people that you see or family members or friends, or you're just interested in anything he does personally, go check out that book because I feel like that book would be a massive deep dive and the massive extension of what this podcast was. Definitely. Thank you so much for your time. And um, maybe we could connect again and talk about different topics. Definitely. I'm 100% keen. I um, really enjoyed this chat and I'll be keen to deep dive in a lot of different things around mindset, spirituality, mental health, the whole ordeal for sure. I appreciate your time, brother. No worries, man. And I'll link everything for Mo as well. So I'll link his book in the show notes. I'll link his Instagram page everywhere where you can find Mo will be in the bio of this episode. So please check out the bio and we'll catch us next time. Cheers. Yeah, yeah, thank you.